You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Well, hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole. And I'm just, I'm just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing. I'm going to make an offer. I'm going to make you an offer. You can't refuse. You're going to listen to this entire episode and you're going to say thank you. Uh, and with me, somebody we are so thankful for is the one and only John Mills. You're going to tell me that you're going to guarantee that this podcast gets released on the streets on time? Bada bing. Come on. No. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we're going to have uh, a, a lot of fun tonight. Um, it's going to be a different type of show, uh, especially as we're releasing here on the week of Thanksgiving. And so we're going to do something just slightly different. Talk about a film that, uh, one, we're thankful exists. Uh, and two, uh, that we're thankful exist as it does when the entire world seemed to be against this movie turning out the way it did. Uh, and so before we dive into talking about The Godfather from Francis Ford Coppola, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And, you know, wherever you're listening, uh, do us a favor. Uh, you know, uh, we, we don't you don't owe us a favor, but we would love it if you would do us a favor and uh, share us on social media. Uh, so, of course, you can find us on X or Twitter, whatever it's called, at the 602 Club. We're on Instagram, at the 602 Club TFM. Perfect place to share our show and interact with us. Of course, you can find the entire network on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Listeners-only discussion group there called the Babel Conference you can join. You can also go over to trek.fm, our entire website, seeing what we're doing. And you can also join us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm. And make sure that all the shows that are happening here can keep coming to you. Uh, each and every week. So, first, uh, John, I was interested because I don't even know if I know uh, when, you know, you first came across The Godfather. Was it one of those, like, your brother rented at the the, the video store and you weren't supposed to be watching it, but you were doing it anyway? Or uh, how, how did you end up coming across The Godfather for the first time? Uh, fun story. I actually saw The Godfather Part 2 first. My, I got it for my brother for Christmas because I knew he was a Godfather fan. I was trying to be a good brother. And I said, well, I've never seen the first part. My brother said, doesn't matter. doesn't matter. You just got to see this. You got to see this. And I watched the Godfather part two first. And then I was like, what just happened? And it's a, you know, one of the greatest films of all time. And I said, now I got to see the first one. And I saw the first one. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Um, so, yeah, I, I saw it in reverse order, and I think probably that has a, at least a little bit to do with my staunch belief that sequels should be able to work independent of their predecessors. You should still be able to enjoy the material, because The Godfather Part Two, I came into that cold, and I loved it, and then I watched The Godfather, and I mean, I became obsessed with everything having to do with this film, and, you know, and The Godfather Part Two, obviously, but... I mean, I, I started buying books about the making of, I started doing all, and pre-internet days, it's extremely difficult to do research on things. And I became obsessed with it. I, I 
learned about Nino Rota. I, I like Coppola's name meant something to me. I'd say it had, you know, the Godfather had a lot to do with me becoming a film fan in the first place. So, I mean, but I mean, everybody's, everybody's approach to this is different. You know, how did you first come across it? It's it's funny you're talking about how, you know, you think that The Godfather uh, Part 2 and The Godfather Part 1 stand alone enough. And I remember, I don't remember what movie it's from, so somebody can can uh, probably be listening to this and will remind me. But they're like, you know, The Godfather Part 2 may actually be better, of course, than the first Godfather. But you have to have seen the original Godfather to truly appreciate it. So I just, as you were talking, I was thinking, huh, that's interesting. But I, I and I, I agree with you. I think, you know, you honestly can watch one without the other. Um, but for me, uh, you know, this was a film that um, I'm pretty sure that I ended up seeing with one of my really good friends. He was living at our house at the time. We were sharing a, a room and many nights together, um, you know, when we were in college, we were watching movies that we hadn't seen that we knew we needed to see. Uh, and specifically, we were doing series. So, like, you know, we watched all of the James Bond movies. We watched all the Star Trek movies. We watched all the Star Wars movies. And, you know, we we're just going through series. And one of them that we ended up watching was the Godfather series. And I remember, of course, you know, I knew about this film. My whole mom's side of the family is Sicilian. So, you know, this is definitely a part of the zeitgeist for me. Uh, but, you know, watching it is a completely different experience when you finally actually see it. Um, and, you know, I, one of the things that I, I'm always struck by every time I watch this film is the complete and utter realism of everything that's on screen, you know. And I, I'm I'm really just struck by that and, and the way in which, especially those movies uh, coming from the 70s, you know, so ultimately grounded, you know, and this movie, you know, there's just nothing about it as you're watching it that doesn't feel like you're in the time period that this movie's taking place. You know, it, it, it almost feels like a, I mean, not a documentary, but you know what I mean? Like, there's just a reality to the film. Yeah, there's um there's a lot to be said for what you're talking about. Like when I finally got to that point where I found out that like Vito's like his room, his office was a set. I was like, it's a what? Like I you're there. And it, like uh, the the cinematographer uh Gordon Willis, right? It's easy to talk Coppola. Coppola got those performances. He put the piece together. He got everything. He's I mean the guy wins for writing Patton and parlays it into this. And it's, it's especially stunning because of the fact that these characters – I think that what it is is everybody loves to talk about Spielberg and Lucas. Coppola – I think is the one who really kicks in the door in the seventies for that sense of making a film feel like you said, really real. He's not using documentary camera angles. 
not by any stretch, but the way things are lit and the way things are played, this is a real watershed. This isn't Hollywood acting, and it's it, that's why the master stroke of the casting so important for this movie because you get that new school acting that is very much typified in Brando. You know, the, the Elia Kazan school, the method acting, the, the real, you know, the inhabiting the character sort of thing. And then, of course, Pacino and, uh, you know, Duvall. These are all actors who aren't they're not like cast in that movie star style. Like Paramount wants Orson Welles to play Vito Corleone. And he would have played it like an old school movie star sort of thing. Brando is the one that just, that gives it that understated, that, that subdued, real dude. The Godfather is charismatic and like it's such a wild performance because he's a monster he's actually not doing good things but you you get it at the end of it you get how somebody with that charisma can inspire people to do terrible things and think that it's okay you know he he has that force yeah. of presence you know, you were you mentioned something about uh, the cinematographer there, and you know, I think one of the the, the hallmarks of the film and and one of the reasons that it's so successful is Gordon Willis's work. Um, you know, I specifically think of the lighting within the house at many points; mm -hmm. it just feels so natural and real. Uh, it doesn't feel like there's added lighting other than what's there on set. Uh, you know, the, and I mean like, you know, when you're in the dining room and they're waiting for the information about where the meeting's going to be held that Michael's supposed to go to. And it just feels completely naturally lit by the chandelier over the dining room table that it's not the world's best light, right? Everybody looks a little bit like not their best because that's what you look like in real life when you're all sitting around eating, just kind of waiting for something to happen. You know, I think of the, the lighting at the hospital scene, you know, on the outside as well as the inside. You're not adding more light to the street, um, you know, to, to make it uh, easier to see things because the lighting there wasn't great. Um, and so, like, all of these type of things is, are, are completely, I think, adding to the way in which the film works. But, you know, then touching on... Uh, you know, specifically with with Marlon Brando, you know, I think what's what's so interesting and so fascinating about the film is how it he takes a character, like you said, who's not doing good things. And yet he invibes this character with this sense of moral compass that he has. Right. Mm. And and I think what's fascinating is I was rewatching the film and, and 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 the place you can see is like the Godfather is specifically worried about this idea of like the new mob that's 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 rising its head from the ashes of you know what he had built, which is, you know, you're making money off gambling, you're making money off women, and you're making money off of, you know, owning 
different cops and or judges, right, that owe you favors. And what's coming in is the thing that is is truly going to uh, destroy the entire system, which is drugs. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not only going to destroy the system, but it's also going to destroy the inner city. It's going to destroy many inner cities. And, you know, the, the fact that Brando's character, uh, Vito, can see that and wants no part of it, um, and that's what causes the, the war that happens then, um, to me, is just really fascinating because in the end, it's like, you're like, well, this, this dude is definitely better than all the people who want to come after him. You know, and it's like uh, yeah. you're stuck between this place where you're you're obviously rooting for somebody who is not a good human being, right? In the end, and and yet at the same time, what he's holding back in a lot of ways is a, a greater evil, which is like you're like okay, uh, we're in that place where you're choosing between the lesser of two evils. Yes, and I think that that specifically calling him a human being is what's important. Because the old mob, quote unquote, the mob that we've all romanticized, if you look at what the actual goal was for a lot of those mobsters, they saw what they were doing as the only way they could provide for their family. They turned to this life. Now, again, I'm not excusing crime. I'm not saying that it's good what anybody did, but it was a motivation for them to provide. They didn't see the system as legitimate anyway, right? The Petsonavante, right? You have the, you know, oh, Michael, presidents and senators don't have people killed. Oh, now, okay, who's being naive? It is a worldview born of that ultimate cynicism of we're just a different breed of politician, Basically, we and that's what the mob was. It was it was its own government. It was a shadow government within the United States. But the human being aspect is Vito doesn't want that for his son. His whole goal was to become successful. And then for the next generation, even if it was only a piece of the next generation, maybe it would be Michael and Connie would go into legitimate life. They wouldn't be what he was. It's the desire of the parent for the kid to be better than they were. When Connie gets married to Carlo, they don't want to bring Carlo into the family. And it's rooted in Vito wants Connie to go be a part of, you know, that that more legitimate world sort of thing. And so, you know, I don't mean to ramble, right? But it's that's what makes The Godfather so appealing is you understand that you look at a Barzini or a a Tatalia and they're just evil garbage. But Vito is like, look, I'm doing this because this is the life I'm in. I don't necessarily want my kids, right? Sonny's going to take over the, he's like, Sonny's a lost cause anyway. There's nothing I can do about that. But the other kids, right? I can, I can maybe get them out. Of this life, you know, and Fredo, Fredo wouldn't survive if he didn't have the family he did. Right. You know, no, I think you're you're what you're talking about. Again, it 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 goes to there is a moral compass to this character 
which is what makes him so unique, right? And 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 what makes it this thing that that causes us to want to root for him because there there is, you know, to to quote uh Padme, there's still good in him. You know, and we know it because we see it because he does actually care for his family, right? And in many ways, um, you know, I think that's one of the beauties of what Puzo had done in his novel and, of course, you know, what uh, they they able to bring to the film is this reality of this idea of, you know, what the mob is doing in power is honestly the same thing that we know is happening at the highest echelons of government. You know, um, there and well, the, the mob doesn't. Yeah, no, I was just going to say the mob doesn't exist if the government doesn't play with it. Like, that's that's one of the core lessons of the movie, is the yes. mob wouldn't yeah. exist if the government wasn't willing to let it and have it be. Like, and eventually, you know, once the drugs come in and you project it forward and you get to Gotti, that's when the government finally makes their move and everything. But, like, you know, I, I mean, it is... It's so maddeningly complex because looking just at the Godfather, I I understand the criticism that some people had for it, saying that it was romanticizing an awful lifestyle of terrible people. But the thing is, the Godfather isn't just Vito, it's... The story of the fall of Michael Corleone, like it's Michael at the end typifies the exact lie that his father was willing to live and justify his life. And so Vito is this lovable old man sort of thing, but then you suddenly realize that Michael you know, in becoming the Godfather, there the human aspect of it is, you know, like you said, you have this sense of like pseudo morality, but at the same time, you're willfully living a lie. You you know, Vito know the whole reason Vito doesn't want Michael in the life is because he knows it's wrong. It's bad. It's a terrible thing. And the whole thing of saying, well, the government is also corrupt is a justification. Right. I, I, one of the questions that I was thinking of, you know, as I was rewatching the film and because, you know, like you said, you know, this is really about the sunset of Vito and the rise of Michael. And so as those two things are happening – you know, Michael is drawn into this because, of course, his father is attacked um, because of the dishonorable acts of those on the other side, um, Tessio and the others who are willing to, you know, they're not going to get what they want from from him. So they they try to strong arm the family into giving what they want. Little do they know that they're waking a sleeping giant uh, and Michael, who will be, I think, even harder in person uh, because of what they put him through. And and I was thinking to this, and I, I wanted to ask you, you know, as we're watching Michael, 
all throughout the story, you know, I, I feel like up into the point where his wife is murdered in Sicily. When when they kill her, it's like that's yep. the death of Michael Corleone in the sense yes. of like and the birth of the dawn that he will be. And it, yep. it's like they they made their bed by doing that because I truly believe he probably would have just tried to come home and live, you know, as normal a life as he possibly could if they would have just let him. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's that scene where Apollonia dies is still one of the most heartbreaking in cinema history because it's the definition of innocent bystander. She's got absolutely nothing to do with this. And, you know, like you said, it's, if they had just left Michael alone, if they had just let him be, it wouldn't have been anything. He he would have he would have just, you know, he he would have just lived his life. He'd have been happy. And, but I think it also speaks to that um, that sense of the old world appeal to Michael that like. In a sense, it's almost in his blood. This this appeal of you know the the, the old world traditional stuff, and so in a sense, I'd say that his love affair with Apollonia winds up foreshadowing why he's so likely to fall, is because he's in love with that old image of power and hierarchy and society that exists and he can't escape it. It's appealing to him in some sense, but it does become darker with Michael because of what they do. It's, you know, and the, and what's funny is that's the part of the movie that everybody seems to forget. And I think you're right to point out because that like, that's the heart of it. That's the heart of it right there. And it's, it's, um, it's in a sense, you know, there, because I know that, Lucas always talked about how he, in his head, the backstory of Sheev Palpatine was that there was a love in his life previously. So I, I almost wonder if it's something where it's like, is that what, is it a similar sort of situation? Because the thing is, Michael becomes not just the new Godfather, but like, you know, especially as we see in Godfather Part Two, he becomes everything awful that we never saw about Vito, and like it, it he he becomes horrifying, and it, it like the Godfather is heartbreaking because at the beginning Michael is sitting there. That's not that's my family. That's not me. This isn't my life. This isn't what I'm about. And then at the end, you see him in that room and the door closing on K and Coppola himself has said, that's a commentary on the, uh, on, on basically like 
who he is in that moment about the lie between a husband and a wife that he keeps telling her we're going to go legitimate. He lies to her. He has Carlo killed. And he blows up to make Kay, Kay stop asking him. And he says, okay, no, of course I didn't do it. And then when that door closes, you realize Kay has to make a decision at that point to lie to herself because she realizes if she, you know, if she were to push a little more, she's going to know that Michael's no longer that man she was in love with that we met at the beginning of the movie. That charming World War II war hero. That Marine veteran. He, that man doesn't exist anymore at all. And it's like it's I mean, God, it's it's such a gutting journey. And I like, you know, to get back to the casting, you know, Paramount originally was like, oh yeah, James Kahn, he's gonna play Michael. I what? Like Al Pacino is the definition of perfect casting. Because you can't imagine anybody else still like playing that role the same way. Well, and yeah, no, I, gosh, the the stupidity of the 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 studio at that point wanting because they just wanted a name, they needed a name, you know, they wanted Warren Beatty or you know uh, uh, Robert Redford, you know, uh, the producer wanted Ryan O'Neill. I mean, all of these people they thought of yeah. like Hoffman <laughs> and Martin Sheen. I just. I, of course, you know, James Conn, and then, of course, they they finally make the deal. James Conn will play Sonny, and we get Pacino as as Michael. But, I mean, the, the, the beauty of Coppola and Ruddy going to bat for the fact that it had to be Pacino. And and the, the reason it needed to be Pacino is because... You needed to have that guy that you knew nothing about coming in so he could play the switch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the beginning, he seems so nonchalant. He seems so dismissive of his family and and like not wanting to really be a part of it at all. And slowly but surely they pull him in. Right. And the, the life just sucks him right in and like a tractor beam and he can't get out of it. I, but that works because you don't know hmm. Pacino coming in at this point as another actor in anything else. I absolutely. Absolutely. And even some of the things that, that, that they have out there that that Burt Reynolds was offered the role. Oh my gosh. But like Br but Brando was like, no, I quit. No, there's not a chance. Burt freaking Reynolds, right? Jack Nicholson, young Nicholson, I could actually, no, I could see Nicholson playing a valid version of the character. Not as good as Pacino, but I could see Nicholson playing a valid version of the character, right? You look to The Shining. He's able to play that sort of like buttoned down kind of guy that has something going on underneath. You know, Nicholson's career is sort of defined by it. But what's interesting is that Nicholson uh, turned it down because he felt that it should be an Italian-American playing the role, which I think is interesting because that's like, that seems so wild back in the 1970s, but when people just accepted roles, 
that, that didn't seem like a consideration to them. And who, who knows? That might just be urban legend that people have passed along or whatever. But like, you know, I, I mean, could I see Dustin Hoffman playing the role? Yeah, I mean, I could. Would it be as good? No. Um, I could see Sheen playing the role, but he's not going to get what Pacino was so perfect at, especially at that stage in his career, which was that that set, like able to convey that energy of somebody that has just something a little dangerous going on underneath even when he's being polite and kind yeah. you're yeah. like i don't know this guy seems like he's got a temper you know it's it's the thing that if you if if you grew up in an italian american household especially a sicilian one uh, yeah. it's the coiled rage it, it, it truly it. is that coiled rage right that's ready to spring at any moment and yeah. And, and I think that that's the beauty with and, – and again, coming from this family uh, where uh, rage was definitely a thing that could happen, um, having seen it, right? And, 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 and you knew you just didn't want to push you know, certain family members to that point, right? You didn't want them to pop off and, and nobody realizes that about Michael until it's too late. Yes. You know, well, and Sonny, that's the beauty is, is it, you know, like, cause Sonny's the hothead. The problem yeah. is, is that Michael's not a hothead. Michael uses right. his anger to perfect theatrical ability to get what he wants. Well, and I think that Duvall's performance has to be given a lot of credit oh, as well, geez, because Duvall, yes. Duvall plays, if you pay attention to him through the film, he's the one that sees it. And there's a couple of reaction shots where you can see Duvall realizing, oh, there's Michael's okay. You know, like he he's recognizing what's there in Michael. Sonny's a, a barely contained explosion. He's just always there. But what you're you know, what you're talking about He's like the uh, Hulk. Well, <laughs> yeah. He's always angry. <laughs> but I, I could tell you that um you know what what you're saying about the propensity for uh you know uh, anger you know always being there i think of the bill burr routine which i can uh, i could understand a little better than i wanted to where he has in one of his specials where he's talking about his wife saying you went from zero to a hundred so quickly where did that come from and he he says I said, what do you mean? Where did that come from? I idle at 75. I didn't go zero to 100. I'm already angry when I'm walking in the place. And I'm like, okay. Like, I've I've seen this. I know exactly what it is. It's like, okay, there are five topics that we stay away from because, you know, somebody somebody might be a little tuned up sort of thing. Never anything violent, obviously, but like very passionate. You know, being a very passionate people. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a well, thing. And that's, that's, I think, the interesting thing, too, is that, you know, the difference between everybody else who has rage in this movie and, and Michael is that his rage is not taken out against people in the way we see it, you know, say with Carlos or even, uh, you know, Sonny, right? Where, like, he, he's going to take it out on someone physically, you know, Michael mm -hmm. is going to 
take that rage and he is going to use it to figure out a plan to dest- like utterly destroy you in a way that you can't come back from. You know, and so that I, I think that's the big difference, you know, and, and I think also, too, in, in many ways, I, I think that the juxtaposition between, like, say, Sonny and Carlos and, and Michael is that Sonny and Carlos are kind of covering covering up for this impotence that they have where they're, they know mm. inside they're not good enough. Michael mm. never thinks that because Michael knows, one, he's been to college, he's been a war hero. And he's really smart. So he knows he's good enough. He doesn't have that chip on his shoulder, really, I don't think, except mm. for the very beginning where people are underestimating him. But like you said, you know, you got to give it to Duvall in his performance where he's the character who's realizing, OK, Michael is the one we might have to worry about the most. Or and follow. I, I, it, or, or yeah, he, he's going to be the one where he's – we. Everybody else is an idiot. Michael is the one with the real plan, you know, and so but I just I find that really interesting because the other guys, they kind of use violence and anger in this impotent way to try and gain a standing. But Michael never does that. Well, they're bullies. Exactly. Yeah, they're bullies and and they don't have any other play except to intimidate. Whereas Michael, Michael intimidates simply by not needing to. You know, like it's it, pay attention to the quiet people sort of thing where it's like they're they're always the ones that have something going on. And Sonny's the dog that's barking all the time. Eventually, people stop paying attention. It's like, hey, he's just he's just barking. It's just OK. You know, like even though the dog it obviously can still bite you, you know, it, if you're if that house on the street you walk by where the dog always barks, you're like, oh, OK, that's just the, ha-. the first couple of times you jump. And the rest of it is like, okay, that's just that dog feels the need to to exert that that influence, uh, as it were. But I think that one of the things as well is that, you know, again, Coppola gets due credit for everything. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I know we'll double back to, you know, to, to casting and everything because how can you – talk about casting without, you know, John Cazale as Fredo. Like that, Fredo has a much bigger role in Godfather Part 2, but he's, you know, while while you're talking about this sort of, um, you know, the Godfather acting is like an, a, an examination of the masculine identity, right? The masculine heritage in this family. Michael's got the, 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 the quiet, danger to him Sonny's the wild man the barely contained explosion Fredo Fredo's the sweetheart he's the like Fredo doesn't belong here he's he's got too good a heart like you feel terrible for Fredo because Fredo is the one that winds up being the reason they're able to get at the Godfather and make the assassination attempt. But, you know, I think that the true masterwork piece of this, and the director always has a lot to do with this too, obviously, but the editing for this is insane. I remember reading a stat at some point that the ratio of film shot to film used was like 30 to 1. That's insane. 
like for every one foot of film that you saw on screen, 30 feet was shot and not used. Like that's an insane amount of film, right? Like you, you, you're dealing with something that's absolutely bonkers in terms of, you know, to borrow a phrase from elsewhere, creating it in the editing booth. But again, have you ever read the Godfather? Have you ever read the book? I have. It's great, actually. It is great, but there are two two key things that make this film work as well as it does. It's knowing which subplots to cut. Yes. Yes. And then knowing how to cut the plots you kept. Mm-hmm. Yep. One happens at the screenwriting stage. One happens at the editing stage. If either one of those things misfires, the film is a dud. Both of those things need to work so perfectly, so perfectly, that even the best performance can't save a flat film. And you're dealing with something that's an epic, like the definition of an epic film. And the fact that you stay invested and glued to it for the entire runtime it's insane because that is it's 175 minutes yeah it's not a well, short film you know i think you talking about the editing and knowing what stories to cut you know i'm guessing that they probably filmed a lot more of the story of johnny fontaine who is much more a part of the book his story is much more expansive in the book and yet, I think in the film, they utilize his story to perfection to give you just enough to, to give you an insight into who the Godfather is as a character. But they also realize that the story of Johnny Fontaine is not the big story here. You, you just need everything else to be building into our main characters. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one of the things you, you're absolutely right in pointing out. You, they had to have found that as a focus in the editing room, I think, and realized, okay, we have to start cutting away things that don't allow us to build into the main characters. And then everything else we do needs to build into that story. Um, and yes, you're right. It's still a long film. But I also think that one of the things that helps with the length of film and the editing of film are the movements you get in the movie. You know, you have the wedding and then you have the beginning of the war and then you have, you know, Michael's uh, Michael's mission. Then you have the whole point that happens in Sicily and then you have Michael returning and then you have, you know, the, the kind of final resolution and then the coda of the film and every one of those movements kind of – it almost reminds me a little bit of the way that Snyder does his Snyder cut where you have these specific movements, you know? And you could almost watch the film in segments if you wanted because they kind of they, – they all go together. It all creates one solid movie, obviously, but at the same time – 
there are specific movements to the to the movie that that carry you along with the story and i think that's one of the genius moves that you know the editing of the film does such a great job of of giving you that because i think it also helps it feel less lengthy as a film because you're 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 kind of in different movements of the story and, and mm-hmm. you, it, it's hard to get tired of the film because, oh, you know, just as you kind of maybe get lulled into a false sense of security with the movie, it, it brings you to the next movement. Yeah. And it's operatic and it's. Yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great word choice. It's interesting because I always look back at this and I, I've had several discussions with friends, one in particular, where there was actually something that Spike Lee said at one point uh, when he wound up, uh, you know, getting the opportunity to direct X, which if nobody has seen it is, is an amazing It's not film. about the thing formerly known as Twitter. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> oh no. Now you've willed that into existence, haven't you? Uh, but it, it's, it's a brilliant film uh, and I love it. And I remember somebody trying to corner Spike Lee at one point and saying, because he had said, you know, that a black director should direct a a movie about Malcolm X. And somebody sort of pressed him on it and was like, well, don't you think other directors could have done it? And Lee's counterpoint was, don't you think Francis Ford Coppola brought something to the Godfather being of Italian descent? And that's always stuck with me. Because could The Godfather have been directed by somebody else? Yes. Would it have the same spirit that this did? No. Because I, I believe in my bones that while Francis Ford Coppola, by every account I know, was not involved in the mob, the sense of family... Because myself also coming from, you know, an Italian-American tradition, the big weddings, the big parties, the, the cousins from all over the planet where like you only saw them at the big events and the, all of the different stuff and people just having a blast. Everything was a reason to sell it. You know, a wedding was, you know, all bets were off. It was, it, it, it was a celebration to end all celebrations sort of thing. Like there is something to that understanding how the culture of the people you're telling the story about how they live and breathe and understand the world. There's something to that. There really is. Well, and I agree with you because, you know, I also think that when you realize that it, you know, was Coppola and Puzo who put the script together and again, they're both Italian, right? And, you know, originally mm-hmm. Coppola didn't want to do this because he kind of felt like it was just kind of trashy sensationalism. And I think that it was the work between him and Puzo hashing out the script together from from the book that really makes the difference in in getting what we get as compared to, you know, of course, everything that was in the novel. And mm-hmm. and I think you're absolutely right. You, these two Italian guys coming in and 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 crafting the story and and having a clear understanding in their minds of you know 
this type of family thing. I, I, you know, it's, it's obvious in Hollywood that you can have different types of people play different types of characters, even if they're not specifically that. That's what good actors can do and everything. But there is mm-hmm. something to be said, too, of having those people who also do have a good understanding of the history or the culture to which they're making the film about um, that could also add something special. It, you know, it, it's it's like – and it, it's not always this case, but it can be the secret sauce. You know, um, the secret ingredient, you know, to the the pasta sauce that just, mm, mm-hmm. you know, it's the chef's kiss. Right. And and so I, I think that that is something that uh, we see in Hollywood throughout lots of different types of films. You know, it's it's not just this. So, I mean, I think, you know, what we've talked about before uh, on Assembling Avengers, you know, I think that's one of the things that for the original Black Panther with Ryan yeah. Coogler, who had such a. Uh, you know, him working with Chadwick Boseman to put this together, to create the world, to create the character, to create the accent, to craft this universe that you're in. It needed them, right? Because of their experience. Um, and I think you're absolutely right here with, you know, these these guys creating this role. And then, of course, having, you know, we already talked about it, Jack Nicholson, you know, I I think this deserves an Italian-American actor. You know, uh, and so there are just some times where, you know, that's that's what you need. It's, you know, it's it's also this movie was going to get made no matter what. The novel was a hit. Yep. People, Puzo talked about the fact that after the novel got released, there were times he would be at dinner and then all of a sudden he was told that his dinner was taken care of. Yeah. And he's like, oh, Okay. I, sure. Thank you. You know, like, and if you've ever read Puzo's reminiscences about working on the film and working in the film industry and those sorts of things, they're delightful. Puzo had a really acid sense of humor. And I, I highly encourage anybody to seek out his reminiscences of what it was like to work in Hollywood and adapt his own work. And this is very much something where I wonder sometimes as well whether The Godfather and later The Godfather Part Two, and even, although I'll acknowledge it as its superior re-edited form, um, The Godfather Code of the Death of Michael Corleone, also known as The Godfather Part Three, but the new cut is way better. Um, there's... There are some life lessons about the world that Puzo works in that I think really in a demented, cracked lens sort of way, make them very valuable modern fairy tales about the world. Because the whole point of the fairy tale is to teach you how the world works and to prepare you for what the world is like. And... Every kid can say, you know, what what I quoted earlier, Onakei, who's being naive, right? Another Petsunavante, right? And the whole idea that all of these people, the, the, I mean, there's a commentary on the movie industry, right? Like, there were some news stories in recent times where people said, oh, well, nobody knew. And I'm like, as far back as The Godfather, Puzo was laying out, you know, there are some real dirtbags running these studios and producing films, right? 
Like, yeah, he's pointing specifically at the industry saying, you know, this is a thing, right? Yeah. And everybody instead is they just think about the horse's head. It's like, no, no, no. What you should be thinking about is Waltz is a horrible human being. He's absolutely terrible. Um, and then, you know, I, I, how hard is it to, to, to stay out of like talking about the, the later stuff? Like, you know, the, the, the corruption of the hierarchy of the church and, yeah. in Godfather yeah. Part 3 and the international mobiliare was a big old red warning flag that was being thrown up about other organizations that have been in the news, uh, you know, recently and stuff like that. Like all the way back then, Puzo's giving us this stuff. But let me ask you that. Do you think the Godfather might have shaped an entire generation's <laughs> view of the world? I mean, yes, because all I can think of, and you might laugh at this, is in uh, You've Got Mail, when he's like, the Godfather is the I Ching. The Godfather's the sum of all wisdom. The Godfather's the answer to any question. What should I pack for my summer vacation? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. What day yep. of the week is it? Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday. <laughs> the answer to your question is, go to the mattresses. It's war. Yes. It's not personal. It's business. It's not personal. It's business. So, yes, I mean, the the Godfather absolutely, and that's obviously in jest, but I do think that there the, – the, the 70s was known, obviously, for its cynicism in film. And the biggest part of that is, of course, you know, of all the things that were happening in the real world with Watergate and all that that had happened. And people just had lost their faith in everything. And, you know, what's so fascinating is, you know, The Godfather is about the generation that kind of built that, right? The thing that we we learn to be cynical about, right? Um, you know, they're the ones who kind of created and brought to the forefront the system where corruption became much more easy to see, you know? And so in, in many ways, I do think that The Godfather, the story, and of course, specifically the movie and then its subsequent uh, sequels really are diving into... Um, the world as it is, and they don't really sugarcoat it, you know? But I think what they do is that in much the same way that the prequel series shows how, you know, a republic dies because the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm. And that's kind of the story, you know, like you were talking about at the very beginning, right? It, Vito Corleone is doing this because his desire is for his children, especially with Michael, to have to be able to be a senator, to be able to be a governor, to be able to be anything he wants to be that isn't this. And yet he's created a world that abhors a vacuum, right? And the moment he's gone, Michael has to fill that because of everything that goes wrong and he'll never be able to escape. And yeah. um, it's it's an incredibly interesting story. And, and I think this movie just does such a great job of crafting that story so that by the time you get to the end and it's the baptism, you know, you have Ugh. 
the baptism oh. by water and the baptism by blood. And it's like, they're two different churches, right? There's the church of Christ and there's the church of Satan. And Michael has just been baptized basically into the church of Satan at Listen, the end. And it's, my, it's masterful yeah. storytelling. Coming from that large Italian-American tradition, my brother and I have stood as godfather several times in our lives. And we have so many cousins, I don't even know how many I have at this point. But, like, there are so many times where whether we were participating in the ceremony or whether we were in the, you know, in the pews watching that when we were at a baptism and the recitation started – my brother and I knew I cannot make eye contact with that guy. Whether we're standing <laughs> next to each other or across the way, we cannot make eye contact with each other because we will start laughing. Because we all we can think about, you know, is do you reject Satan? And all of us are I do. And, you know, that swelling of the music. And thanks to that ending, I have trouble going through revolving doors to this day. Because all I can think of is Cheech locking that door and shooting right at the camera. <laughs> yeah. And every time I go through one, I'm like, oh, is this the time it's going to happen? But, you know, if it were to happen, I could honestly say I'd be like, you know, okay, kind of poetic if it does. Yeah. I, I got uh, – so one thing I was thinking of, and, and it's always been such an interesting storyline, but the storyline with Kay – Especially when Michael returns, I'm always flabbergasted as to why she marries him mm. because it's mm -hmm. so utterly clear that he doesn't really love her. Yeah. And so like is, is she just doing the thing where she she's trying to make herself believe that Michael still loves me because she's still so heartbroken or I, what is it that? That makes her marry him, especially when she knows he's not the same guy. He just isn't. It's a beautiful thing to debate. What makes Kay stay? And I don't think I will ever have a good answer for it. It's the same thing where you look at Padme and you're like, why, why are you staying with the psycho? Right now, you know, you can... You can stick with it, but it's that whole idea, I think, that somebody can believe that there's still that good person in there. The way I've always read Kay is that she believes Michael's been through something fairly traumatic, and he's working his way through it. And she's remembering that guy that we met at the beginning of the film. And she believes he's that guy. He's just working through some stuff. That she's giving him the benefit of the doubt. Because he's lying to her. He's saying what he knows will make her believe him. And the, the really monstrous thing about it is that Michael's doing that in the most basely manipulative way because all it is is he just wants the wife 
so that he can have the kid, so that he can continue the family line. I mean, because when you, when you get down to it, one of the big things that traps Michael as well is love. He loves his dad. As much as they might not see eye to eye, he knows his dad loves him, and he loves his dad. And it's that love that initially keeps him in that orbit. So I would apply that same thing to Kay. That Kay is dragged down by the fact that she does love Michael, or at least who she thinks Michael is. And that's why Kay stays with him. Yeah, I think you make a great argument. And I do think that obviously you can see where uh, Lucas gets some inspiration specifically for the Anakin and Padme storyline. I think you can truly see, you know, like you said, the the whole idea of Michael being trapped by love, um, I think by possession, the idea of power. Um, like you mentioned, the idea of just wanting the kids um, and, you know, all of that. So, you know, again, feels so very Star Warsy, but it's that operatic nature that you, we were kind of dimensioning that this film and the story is, is has built into it. And, you know, I, I think the beauty of this and the and, and the, the thing that I think continues to make this story work for so many people is the way in which Michael goes about reality creation, right? He is willing into existence the reality he desires to have for himself. And Mm -hmm. whether it's true or not, everybody's going to believe my lie. And Mm -hmm. I think there's just something so powerful for that. And I think it's something that we all resonate with because too many times in our own lives, I think we're guilty of doing the same thing, right? I am going to pretend like this is the truth, regardless of whether it's actually true or not. And if anybody, you know, uh, challenges that, well, you know, that is not going to be good for them. And it, it's it's an I, I think when you were talking about like that with Kay and everything, it's like, yeah, no, Michael, that's exactly what he's doing. He is creating the reality he desires, whether or not there's true love there or not. He's going to pretend like there is, and goodness me, so is everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... um There's just so many things about this film that are so... so timeless... And it's one of those things where I know Coppola is working on Megalopolis still, and that's having its own production challenges, um, which I think is actually when Coppola does his best work, when he has challenges making the film. Um, It seems to bring him focus for things. But there... a truly perfect Gives film. There focus. Yeah. Makes you strong. But, but there are there are films that are five, you know, five out of five stars for this or that reason. And they're great and they're art and they're all of that type of stuff. But the true masterworks 
of film are the ones that no matter how many times I've watched it, I will never tire of it. And The Godfather is definitely in that slot. And for Coppola to have delivered this film so early in his career is mind-boggling. Absolutely mind-boggling. And the fact that he went on to then do The Conversation, Godfather Part Two, and Apocalypse Now in the 1970s as well is... It defies description. It defies belief what he was able to produce in that time as an artist. But The Godfather itself, I struggle to think of the 70s going the same way for up-and-coming directors if Coppola doesn't nail the landing on this one. The Godfather is early enough in the decade and successful enough that I think it warms up the studios to the point they needed to be at to think that this new crew of kids coming up had something special to offer. And they were willing to trust them with the, the, you know, the budgets necessary to get the films done. Because the 70s, I mean, Paramount is coming out of a really rough patch when this, you know, movie's getting made. They need this hit bad. And I think The Godfather sets the tone because it's not an up-and-coming director delivering a cult hit that plays at a couple of local theaters for a few months. This is a movie that defined the year and then... You know, it, it's it's a cultural touchstone. So I think it makes studios much more likely to gamble with the new young directors and say, oh, okay, well, hey, let, you know, it's just like Star Wars is a big hit. Suddenly everybody wants to make a star, uh, wants to make a, a star action movie, right? Okay, we're going to do space stuff. We're going to do space stuff. This kid, this kid did this, this great space thing. Okay, okay, okay. You know, or Spielberg hits it with Jaws. And it's like, ah, Orca's coming out. And we're going to turn this into a franchise and all that sort of thing. Like, I do. I, I, I will always maintain that this elevates the opportunity of young directors by being not just a hit, not just being respectable, not just an award winner, but being what it was. Like, this is lightning in a bottle, man. Absolutely lightning in a bottle. I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I, I think if anybody who's – and if you haven't seen it, go watch The Offer and Paramount Plus. It's so good about the making of The Godfather. It's an incredibly fascinating story because, I mean, the making of The Godfather involves the mob, the real-life mob. Uh, mm -hmm. And when you see – the absolute struggle it was, like you were mentioning, you know, uh, Megalopolis that he's working on now, Coppola is now. This movie, again, as we talked about at the very beginning, and, and one of the reasons just kind of talking about the film in the way we have is because there's so much about this movie that could have gone sideways so easily. And that is an incredible testament, that show, to what happened 
um, and the people behind the scenes that fought tooth and nail every single day, sometimes all day, to make sure that this movie happened the way that it happens. And I think you pointing out that this does then, I think its success allows Hollywood to be able to see that maybe there's an, a new generation we need to be looking at to come in and create films. And yeah, the late 70s is exactly that's what happens. You know, we wouldn't probably have Spielberg and Lucas without them. You know, Coppola's success is what allows him then to be able to push his his boy Lucas. You know, uh, and so I. Yeah, I mean, the beauty of this is the way in which, you know, this is a movie that not only changed the landscape of film then, but it's one that continues to do so now because of the the reverberations and the repercussions of everything that happened in this film are are still, you know, being seen today. Um, And the fact that, you know, this movie had its 50th anniversary, uh, was able to come back out into theaters um, and, you know, has had the longevity. Is there something about The Godfather that just gets people when they see it? And when they do, uh, it grabs hold of you and it doesn't let go. And like you mentioned, it's I think it's it's because you can watch it. And every time I feel like you're just kind of picking up a new nuance. And or, that's what makes it five stars every time. Uh, every time without fail. And it's, I, I got to ask, right? Because we talked about our first encounter with it. Have you ever had the treat of seeing this on the big screen? I've not, unfortunately. Uh, it's it's one of those things. I think when it came out for its 50th anniversary, I was going to try and go. And then it's, you know, it's a fathom event. And mm. You know, when it's being shown or days that I've got things going on that I can't get out of. And it's like, dang it. I was blessed. There was um, a theater called The Senator in Baltimore. It's probably still there. Um, And it was a historic theater. And they showed a print for one of the anniversary releases. I forget which one, which year. And my friend was like, oh, they're showing The Godfather. And I'm like, when? When are they? When are they? Sh- when are they showing it? When are they showing it? I must go, and seeing it on the big screen. Um, they really need movie. We all know movie theater. Everybody talks about movie theaters struggling. You want to get people back in the theaters, have anniversary showings of The Godfather, because it'll remind you how even the small movies, quote unquote, there's. There's no special effects outside of, you know, some blood squibs and stuff like that. There's a questionably staged fight scene, but there's nothing with a <laughs> yeah. lot of, you know, a lot of hubbub. You know, it's just there in camera. And it's like, it's, you know, I, my wish is that somebody pieces it together that the way to save movie theaters is to say, hey, Paramount. Can we show The Godfather? Hey, 20th Century Fox, can we show Alien? Can we show, like, bring these movies back to the theater, man. And people will show up for them. Return of the Jedi's re-release proved that. 
right? It absolutely yeah, you're is. Not, yep. You're not going to make $100 million yeah. in your weekend, but you're going to make money and you're going to get people back in the theater. Like it's, it's well worth it. I don't know. I don't know why they don't do this. I'm, I couldn't agree with you more. I, you know, I think it, it's one of those things where, you know, it's, it, it's so fun to just be able to talk through a movie like this. And I think, you know, for both you and I, the families we grew up in, you know, we both have Italian heritage. And so it, it means a lot to us because of that. But I think it's just a film that, you know, it, it's one of those where every time I watch it, I just get something new. I see something new. I'm struck by something new uh, that I I feel like I hadn't seen before or noticed. And it, it's, you know, it's like those great films that you watch where that happens, you know, where, you know, I think of um, the little nuances that I still get out of watching, like, say, Star Trek 2, yeah. you know, uh, or, you know, again, there are, are there are these types of movies where that just keeps happening and it and it almost it it feels fresh every time you're watching it, and uh, that's what makes a movie like The Godfather. You know, I think uh, as we would both agree, a clear five star film, and one that if you've never seen before, I don't know why you would be listening to this, uh, but hopefully yeah. uh, you will go and see it. Um, but John, one thanks for joining me for this and and being able to just kind of talk through a film that we're absolutely 100% grateful for. uh, And uh, we hope that uh, you're grateful for us just kind of being able to talk back and forth about it. But maybe people want to catch up with you and talk about their favorite Godfather moments from part one, two, or the coda. Where could they find you? Well, I I was going to say, Matt, that you made me an offer I couldn't refuse when you said, let's talk about the Godfather. So, I mean, let's be honest. You can find me out there as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E, and you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network, where I co-host two shows. One of them is called House Lights, where we look at the work of directors like Francis Ford Coppola, and uh, I co-host that with Tristan Riddell and Darren Moser, and you can find me co-hosting a delightful Star Wars podcast called Aggressive Negotiations with one Mr. Matthew Rushing. Absolutely. Everybody should be listening to our Thanks Gungan episode over there uh, with that. Uh, as we're recording this, that'll be out as well uh, now. So go, go find it. You, you, you want to hear John and I talking about all the things we're thankful for in Star Wars. Uh, you can also find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 Of course, here on the network outside the 602 Club with Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp 5, The Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, you can find me talking about the entire Harry Potter saga, one chapter at a time, on Owlpost. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 